Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Hello and welcome to Hiraith. 2022 has been quite the year in the UK. Not only has there been a succession of prime ministers, but also a new head of state as Charles III has acceded to the throne following the death of Elizabeth II. To discuss the year that was and his own journey from Llanelli to the cabinet of the UK government, we're joined by the MP for South Swindon, the Right Honourable Sir Robert Buckland Casey. Hello, Robert. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be on the podcast. So to begin, as we say in Wales at the beginning, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, environment in which your worldview was formed? What steps took you from Llanelli and St Michael's School in Bryn to Hatfield College in Durham and then back to Wales as someone ready to stand as a Conservative? Well, indeed, to begin at the beginning, and, and indeed, as you said, I'm from Carmarthenshire, very much from Dylan Thomas country, and I'm extremely proud of my roots. My parents are still in Llanelli, so I'm back and forth as often as I can. And indeed, it was where my political career started, because I was elected as a Conservative councillor for David County Council, as it then was back in 1993, and then made slow, steady progress, ending up in the in the uh, in the Westminster Parliament in 2010. But for me, uh, you know, my political views had been formed at a time of quite interesting political strife. You know, the 1980s was not a, a quiet time politically. We had most notably the miners' strike. Um, I joined the Conservatives in the middle of the strike because I felt very strongly that a democratically elected government should not be challenged by an unlawful uh, strike uh, that was actually, I thought, a betrayal of a lot of the mine workers in the industry at the time. And, and that was just part of, I think, my my overall view of, of um, life and indeed politics, which is which is a conservative one. It, it, it is a one that believes in individual enterprise, in the family and community, but together, uh, all of us making a contribution to creating that essential welfare state, the safety net that can protect and support those who cannot help themselves. And I think that balance of uh, compassion, uh, but a belief in in success and achievement and the ability of people to realise their potential in a way that um, is free uh, is, I think, very much at the heart of the conservatism that I believe in. I suppose you describe me as a one-nation conservative, most broadly, which traditionally has been seen as the more moderate sort of uh, temperament, moderate wing of the party. I view myself very much as a person of, of radical inclination who wants to see change where I see injustice or inefficiency. And that's what I've tried to do in my life and work, both as a, an MP and indeed as a, as, a, as a member of the cabinet. Did you join the Conservative Party in Llanelli? And what was the your kind of initial, when you joined them, did you feel that instantly you were at home? What, what would you say is the character of conservatism in Llanelli? Because of course, there are you know, many famous conservative politicians that have come from that part of the world over the years. Very much. You know, I did join the party in Llanelli and was active in it. I helped run the 1987 general election campaign. I was the agent for the Conservative candidate who came a plucky second to Denzel Davis, who was then uh, a very well-known former minister uh, MP uh, for Llanelli. And whilst it's my, some people might say it was a bit of a quixotic um, enterprise, it taught me a lot about organisation, about how to uh, deal with people, how to persuade people about the merits of your cause and your case, even when it's a, a difficult uh, wicket to bat on. And, uh, you know, I treasure the time that I had organising and running campaigns. I then 
went off to university, but came back, as I was saying, and I got elected uh, as a Conservative, which I, I don't think had happened before until Netflix. I don't think they'd seen that before. And I remember uh, Jeff Hopkins, the late Jeff Hopkins, who was Denzel's agent, coming into the count in 93, when I won by three votes over Labour, took the seat from them, and he said, what's going on here? And I said, well, I'm going on here, Jeff. We've just taken the seat. And uh, I think it was quite a shock to the system uh, for um, a Labour Party that perhaps become a bit overused to winning in a way that I thought bred a bit of complacency. That that complacency has never really been part of my politics. I've always had to fight to win uh, seats that I hold and retain them. Uh, so I don't have any room for sitting back and uh, relaxing and assuming that the vote can be weighed. That's never been my uh, fate in politics. That victory in Ashley Ward in uh, David back in '93, by you know, as you say, by just three votes. Um, I've read a little bit about that on the internet, and and many of the comments suggest that that was the first time that that ward had been held by a Conservative for decades. In terms of what you brought to that campaign, how was it that you were able to do in that circumstance something that Conservatives before you simply hadn't been able to do, even though if you know, as you say, the margin for victory was very very tight. Yes. Well, it was a combination of knowing, you know, having been born and bred in the ward, I went to one of the polling stations was Old Road School, where which was my primary school. And I knew everybody, you know, I knew so many people uh, living in that ward. Uh, and I therefore, when I was canvassing, and I did, I did a, I think, a near 100% canvas of the ward, you know, people knew me and knew me from childhood. And I think that really helped that sort of connection I had with people really, really helped. And I remember, you know, writing letters to 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 uh, residents i remember really working it hard in the traditional way and then doing a full telling operation at the polling each of the three polling stations in order to make sure that everybody who said they were going to vote did vote and we were still pulling people out of their houses at about eight o'clock half past eight in order to to win and then you know it i mean it was a pleasant surprise i thought i'd run it close but to win after three recounts by three was uh you know quite the thing and uh, it's still one of my proudest achievements nearly 30 years on are you suggesting that there was a a graft and an intent there there was an industriousness about your campaign that perhaps ruffled some feathers or kind of shook up the local consensus is that is that a fair reading i think i think so i mean i didn't sort of run you know as a controversialist i wanted to you know be somebody who was public spirited who wanted to represent people whatever their vote and just do my best for the local area and the ward you know clearly is my home and i'm proud of it and i wanted to serve it and um i think that positive campaign together with a lot of hard work on the ground meant that labor didn't really see me coming um and uh, i think they were rather shocked by by what happened. I mean, you know, I have to say, 1995, when I when I was not re-elected to the new Commandership County Council, uh, was perhaps their revenge. Uh, but it was a new uniformly a very bad year for the Conservative Party nationally, um, and therefore perhaps it wasn't a surprise that although my vote went up, um, unfortunately the Labour candidate polled more than me. So uh, that was the end of my few years in in local government in Wales. But it was a, it was an extremely valuable experience for me. Uh, can I ask if you've ever thanked John Redwood for redrawing the local government map uh, for, uh, uh, for for losing that seat? <laughs> well, I remember John coming to canvas with me in Llanelli when he was Secretary of State for Wales. So fair play to him. He was out there when it mattered, you know, knocking doors and, and engaging. I still remember vividly, you know, John Redwood walking up and down Queen Victoria Road 
it's an athlete, you know, it's not a psych you see every day, but uh, part of our wonderful democratic system that brings cabinet ministers directly in touch with their residents. It, it was, it was a, quite a sight to see. You mentioned, obviously, you went then to university, you studied law at university um, uh, in Durham. And as I understand it, that you then came back to Wales then and you stood for the European Parliament uh, seat in South Wales West. Also, Isloin, did you stand in Isloin? And well, in a, a bit of research, we were talking around, someone also mentioned that you might have stood at some point for local government in the Vale of Glamorgan. Is that is that right? Well, that, that's absolutely right. I was a bit of a trooper. I, you know, where, where we needed candidates, I would stand. So I I did that in Swansea. Uh, I remember on one occasion then the Vale of Glamorgan later when I was living near Cardiff, uh, because I felt, you know, I was part of a team, I wanted to to help. But by that time, I was really focusing, you know, on Westminster, as you said, stood in, in uh, Isloin in the by-election caused by Neil Kinnock's uh, move to the Commission. Uh, again, a rather difficult campaign at a difficult time for the Conservative Party. And then I stood in the 97 election, of course, in Pembrokeshire, in Brazali Pembrokeshire, which was uh, the most beautiful place to, to lose. I have to say it was a gorgeous spring. I remember the weather was amazing. It was a wonderful, beautiful spring, as only spring in Pembrokeshire can be like. And uh, you know, despite the results, it was a, it was a, it was a it was a very pleasant way to go down. You know, fighting. It's interesting. There's there's this political tradition of of standing in seats that are going to be particularly tough for you to win. We had Jeremy Miles on the podcast recently. He was telling us about his unsuccessful campaign in Beaconsfield, um, which um, you know he it was. A, baptism of fire, you know, for somebody to stand in a very difficult seat. What do you think the value is for that someone who aspires to be a member of parliament to go through that process in standing in a seat where the odds are somewhat stacked against you? I think it's invaluable. I think it teaches you, uh, if you haven't got it in your system, it should teach you a bit of humility and about the fact that uh, however convinced you might be about your arguments, however passionate you might be about your cause, You've got to persuade people. And if you don't get a majority, well, you know, you've got to accept that and live with it and respect the result and learn about defeat as much as victory. You know, treat the what's what's the old Kipling line, treat those two imposters just the same. And I think, you know, through defeat, um, I, I learned about the value of, you know, actually when you win, what you do with the privilege of office and i think that um you know far from me just swanning into westminster uh, with the most difficult task being persuading a selection committee you know everything i did was a long hard road to westminster and i'm very glad i did it I'm, i i'm very i think i think it's actually made me um, um dare i say a better 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 politician more more willing to listen to people and i think listening is the most important and underrated art that a politician needs to uh, hone we're very good at broadcasting we're great at talking but listening takes more energy and more concentration uh, and that's i think such an important part of the job that we we do you were obviously ultimately successful um in securing a nomination and then actually successful in the parliamentary seat of south swindon in 2010 Quite an interesting year to be elected to the UK Parliament because, of course, you know, we're quite used to coalitions here in the Welsh Parliament and in Scotland, you know, it's not unusual to have co coalitions, but in Westminster, it's quite unusual to have coalitions. So what was your experience, not only as a new MP representing, as I say, South Swindon, but also coming into a new parliament with a new government and a new type of government that we haven't seen for some time? 
Well, I, I remember it vividly. First of all, there were two experiences I was having. One was actually being a new MP, learning about the place, learning how to settle in. I was sharing an office with my North Swindon friend and colleague who'd been elected with me on the same day. We'd taken both seats from Labour. So we were actually focused on really making sure that we were dealing with our emails and answering our constituents' queries, setting up our offices. And I remember, you know, almost over our heads, there were the negotiation was going on to form the coalition and to, you know, understand the dynamic of that and I think I think you know the thing that, that brought it home to me was when I was seeing Liberal Democrat ministers answering at the dispatch box something I never thought I would see and I think they were rather surprised as well to say the least uh, but it was later when I became a member of that coalition government that I then fully understood the way in which it worked and uh, in that government committees uh, very often now committees of cabinet are what we call right round only committees they don't actually meet they they correspond and private offices correspond with each, with each other to agree or disagree on policy. In those days, the, the, they used to meet. So the Home Affairs uh, Committee of the Cabinet, chaired by Nick Clegg, used to meet and we would all gather, and I was Solicitor General then, uh, you know, we'd have Ian, uh, Ian Duncan-Smith, we'd have Chris Grayling, we'd have Red Davey, we'd have Vince Cable, you know, it was it was a fascinating gathering of political figures who you'd think would have nothing in common. And yet we were able to, in that coalition, drive through some very important public sector reforms, very difficult policies to deal with the aftermath of the disastrous economic crisis of 08. And actually, you know, a, a government that people will look back on and say achieved many, many things and was actually a very, very capable government. Perhaps it's easier, would you say, for the Conservatives to look back on that coalition than it is for the Lib Dems, because, of course, they've paid a sort of electoral price for that in a way that perhaps the Conservatives haven't. And maybe is that reflective of the, the sort of dominance in the relationship or is that something to do with the actual way that that coalition worked? Well, I think partially the way in which it worked. Um, I think I think the quad was a very interesting concept. That was uh, Osborne Cameron, Danny Alexander, remember him, and Nick Clegg. And actually, that that was quite a very good sieve in terms of acceptability. I mean, sometimes I think the Liberals, the Lib Dems, really put priority on very odd things. Um, they didn't actually push on tuition fees. Whereas the 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 the, the, the history, history now recounts that had they done that, there would have been a compromise, which, of course, was the big, biggest single hit to their cred credibility that they ever took. And it was damaged, destroyed them in university seats, for example. And yet they pushed on things like Lord's Reform, which really, you know, frankly, are just second order issues, hardly the most important issues of of the day. And, and I thought some of their choices were were frankly odd. I think the problem for the Lib Dems is that because they've spent their years enjoying camp the campaign, campaigning, making the campaign promises that you can make when you have no responsibility, when the actual rubber hit the road and they took responsibility, that's when reality bit. Now, for Conservatives, that's been the story of our lives in politics. You know, we're more, most often in government. We have to make decisions that are, uh, um, are, are based on reality. And that means that we can't go around making, you know, wonderful Father Christmas promises to everybody. And that's not what we do as Conservatives. And therefore, in a government that had to make hard choices, we temperamentally were much more prepared and ready to do that because of our history of government than the Lib Dems ever were. And now the Lib Dems, uh, in, in an attempt to sort of forget that they were ever in coalition, are, are unlearning all the lessons that they learned. You know, they could have said, look, we are now a mature party of government. We won't carry on making irresponsible promises. But yet 
you know, even though they're led by Ed Davey, who was a cabinet minister in that coalition, part of making very tough decisions, they seem to be busy unlearning all of that and trying once again to be Father Christmas politicians. I think that's a historic mistake for them. Uh, and it dooms them, I think, to to the fringes of politics for a long time to come. Yes, uh, and we're in a, process, a period again where laws reform is is coming back to the agenda again. And I think it, it, it always feels like a death knell for some kind of uh, ambition to actually achieve something as soon as you prioritise laws reform. And uh, I wonder what will happen with that under, under Keir Starmer, uh, should he ever um, find himself in number 10. Um, you, you mentioned tough decisions there, and I'm, I'm sort of galloping through some pretty important uh, parliamentary years here because I want to get on to the time when you were cabinet minister. So it's unavoidable that we should probably talk a little bit about what people sometimes refer to now as the Brexit wars. The period 2016 to 2019 was possibly the most tumultuous time that many people can remember in UK politics. And, it, you know, at the heart of it all was uh, a very fevered Westminster. You know, there, there were some people who appeared more interested in pursuing their own agenda than, you know, thinking of the common good. Um, and there was, you know, there were some people that were prioritising their own very unique, perhaps idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic interests above yes. um, uh, actual policy. And and how do you reflect on that now? Because, you know, thankfully, that period is con <laughs> consigned to history. But it must have been a maddening, dizzying even, the kind of stuff that was going on, particularly, you know, that era of the meaningful votes and that 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 kind of craziness. How do you reflect on it now several years down the line? Well, I think we're in a better position to reflect. And I think that the answer is that both extremes pulled away from each other and made a hard Brexit inevitable. And for that, I blame the ultras on one side, the Spartans, if you like, who who wanted their Brexit at, at, at all costs. And then the, the, the second referendum mob, who uh, you know wanted to pursue a so-called people's vote that I believe would have delivered an even more emphatic vote for Leave, uh, which was entirely misconceived, very poorly thought through, and it resulted in in a complete failure by the Parliament of 2017, which you remember was was a minority parliament, no no party had a majority to agree on anything, and the closest we got to in those um, indicative votes was on the customs union, where we were a couple of votes away from agreeing that a customs union was the the right future. I voted. For for it. Rory Stewart, quite a few Conservatives did. Ken Clark, it was his amendment, if I remember. And I can remember remonstrating with Ian Blackford from the Scottish Nationalists. They did not vote in favour about the missed opportunity that they could have had to at least get some compromise for the common good. Uh, that was, I think, emblematic of the failure of that broken parliament to get anything meaningful done. But having said that, there was I, a Remainer, uh, having to accept the result of a referendum that I, you know, I, the result that I didn't vote for, but feeling that it was in the greater common interest for us to honour that result, because I feared for the consequences of our democracy and the reaction that I think we would have seen, uh, quite an extreme reaction, if Parliament had blithely ignored that result. And that's why I got involved in the EU Withdrawal Bill, the Act of Parliament that then paved the way for the legal basis for withdrawal, uh, which we managed to get through, uh, albeit heavily amended, but in a way that showed that in that Parliament things could be done. And, uh, you know, I look back at that experience uh, as one that um, we'll probably never, never see again in our political lifetime. I'm glad it's over. But again, it taught me a lot about myself and about the capacity of people to to come to terms with things and the times when people just couldn't do that, which is why the general election of 2019, three years ago this week, was such an important sort of, uh, dare I say, 
laxative to flush through the system all the the problems and the ills of the parliament that preceded it. And whatever one's view about Brexit, we were able to move on politically. Uh, and especially it was important, bearing in mind what was about to happen with the COVID crisis. Would you say that the UK parliament, some some flaws in the structure and the process of parliament were exposed during that period? And if so, has anything changed to kind of correct that? Or is, or, or is, it, is it something that parliamentarians needed to kind of reflect on and change the way that they conduct themselves to avoid getting into that sort of vortex once more? You see, I think it's easy to blame the institution. I'm afraid I think it's those holding office that, uh, and the politicians of all parties who are ultimately responsible for the way a parliament behaves. And each parliament is different in character from its predecessor. The rules might stay broadly the same, but the personalities and the balance of power really makes what the, the parliament, the, the dynamic of a, of a parliament. Um, and that parliament was particularly difficult, I mean, toxic, dare I say, because of the different coalitions within parties, between parties, and, you know, uh, more generally. Whilst Parliament is set up as a majoritarian model, you know, it does work efficiently when one party is a majority. Being absolutely frank, we probably haven't learned all the lessons about that time. Uh, and I still think there's work to be done here for parliamentarians to be able to do more to scrutinise particularly legislation. And I'm thinking about, you know, legislation that isn't yet on the floor of the House, but which needs to be looked at before it comes into force. So there's more of that happening here now, which is good. The online harms bill is an example where that, that was done. Um, uh, you know, and that's good. But I, I, I think that what perhaps is missing is, is a genuinely mature reflection about you know, where we are, what we need to do to strengthen our standing orders. But at the end of it all, you know, the conventions, some of them were stretched, but they actually didn't break. Uh, and most notably on the prorogation, Parliament, uh, the, the, the government actually followed the, the ruling of the court and reconvened Parliament the next day. So it was, there was a real sort of feeling of tension. Ultimately, the system did uh, hold together. And that's why I'm very, very, uh, you know, hostile to and loath to uh, see a, a move to a, you know, a written constitution or some sort of change that somehow makes the assumption that the British system is broken. I don't believe that for one minute. But I do think that, um, you know, stewardship, the stewardship that we have as politicians here now, is something we've got to take even more seriously than we do at present. The thing that I, I I wonder if we could draw from that is perhaps has there been a, a sort of depolarization that is allowing a more functional parliament? Because of course that that kind of binary referendum thing encouraged in a way polarization. And and have we seen a process to almost kind of reverse that where there is more collaboration across party divides and within party coalition divides? I do feel that 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 the toxicity of the, the the sort of the binary divide of the referendum is now draining out of the system. It's taking time. I think it will continue to to heal. We mustn't underestimate the amount of cross party work that continues to go on here quietly. I mean, I. Uh, you know, have been involved in a number of cross-party campaigns. I'm chairing a couple of all-party groups 
which are very much cross-party in their approach. You know, party politics doesn't really come into it, and rightly so, uh, in order to achieve a common goal. Uh, and therefore, that shouldn't be underestimated here. I think the problem is not so much what is within Parliament, it's the extra-parliamentary influences of social media that really, I think, help to maintain the polarisation of politics. You know, Twitter is a very uh, primary colours sort of place where nuance goes out the window and, you know, subtle argument just doesn't exist. And a lot of my parliamentary colleagues seem to love it. They spend inordinate amounts of their time on it, tweeting away, tweeting things that I know perhaps they don't actually necessarily subscribe to. Uh, are they trying to impress their constituency parties or, you know, their, 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 their partisan supporters? Uh, a lot of that, I think, uh, means the echo chamber of social media is, uh, you know, not helping to to bring politics together in a way that I think serves the system and the country and the people much, much more effectively. Uh, an optimist might say the way that uh, Twitter is being run and owned at the moment suggests that it could go bankrupt and out of business by the end of the year. So uh, let's let's see what happens there. I'm just going to move forward a few years. Um, obviously, uh, you'd, you'd served time as Solicitor um, General for England and Wales uh, from, I think, 2014 onwards. But in 2019, you were appointed uh, Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor by um, then Prime Minister Boris Johnson to be made um, a, me a member of the Cabinet. And such a significant role must be huge for anyone at any time, frankly, even if you've already had a, a traineeship as a, a minister or a junior minister. You know, what was the experience like, particularly at quite a contentious, again, you know, uh, it, it, I'm not trying to paint the picture that every time in every period of Westminster life has been contentious over the last few decades, but again, it was quite a difficult time. Well, it was, and, and, and I'd been a Minister of State in the Department for prisons and probation for a couple of months, but it was a big uh, move for me. It was a huge promotion to one of the most senior offices of state, a department of 88,000 staff, one of the biggest departments in Whitehall, and the Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, you know, one of the ancient titles of our kingdom, uh, second in the order of precedence, you know, terribly grand, and the history of it, you know, Thomas More, um, Thomas Beckett, Cardinal Wolsey, they'd all been Lord Chancellor, you know, and I was the second guy from Llanelli after Elvin Jones to be Lord Chancellor. I took my oath in Welsh and English, which uh, my good friend Lord Lloyd Jones, who's our Supreme Court judge from Wales, was particularly pleased with. Uh, and um, when I spoke, I spoke about the fact that I, you know, spent my life in the law. I'd addressed judges from the barristers' bench many times in that very court, and now I was the Lord Chancellor. Um, and, and it was a job I absolutely loved. Um, it was something that I sort of felt I was ready to do. Uh, I took the judicial relationship side of the job incredibly seriously and I'm very proud that I think I enjoyed the confidence of the judges in the work that I did uh, and I was particularly passionate about um, how we uh, improved our prisons uh, and I worked very hard to make sure that the prison building program you know new modern prisons was on track and we were delivering as fast as we could during Covid the biggest challenge I had of course was the, the threat of Covid in prisons and again I'm very proud that through the work of the staff and all the officials of the department, we managed to minimise the outbreaks in our prisons and save lives. Uh, we lost, I think, about 123 prisoners to, uh, who died with COVID uh, and other conditions. That could have been hundreds of times worse, uh, according to initial projections. And we did it without having to release thousands and thousands of people into the community, which is what happened in other 
jurisdictions. But more generally, I got on with the work that we said we do in the manifesto. You know, I passed legislation to uh, codify sentencing and to strengthen uh, the force of sentencing of serious sexual and violent offenders by making sure they stayed longer in prison. Uh, I reformed the law of divorce uh, to create no-fault divorces. Uh, I changed the law on the parole board and the need to take fully into account when a prisoner hasn't disclosed the whereabouts of the deceased's body, a uh, particularly important campaign run by Marie McCourt, which people, who people will remember his daughter had been murdered by a, a perpetrator who never to his dying day said where the body was left. And so I'm very proud, actually, of all the work that I did. I'm frustrated because I hadn't finished it after two or so years. And uh, my departure from government uh, was uh, a matter of great uh, frustration to me. But that's politics. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there is an easy way to explain what happened or why, as, as the Prime Minister himself said, when he had to resign, them's the breaks. Um, so so that's that. That's that's what happened to me, uh, you know, in 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 that time that I had as as Lord Chancellor, it was a great privilege. Yeah, it's a, it's an extraordinary amount of stuff, you know, as you say in the background with COVID, you know, raging as it was for much of that period as well. I mean, any kind of functioning government other than the immediate health emergency must have been incredibly complicated. I'm glad that you you mentioned um, as a Pontypridian. I'm uh, glad to uh, that you mentioned a fellow Pontypridian, Lord Lloyd Jones. Um, uh, yes. in that in that context and and whilst I don't want to dwell on it I do feel that I probably have to uh raise the question uh with you one of the things that Lord Lloyd Jones has been speaking about recently uh, to the honorable society of the Cumradorian among others is the the sort of re-emergence of a distinct Welsh set of law as separate to the law of England and Wales, um, which you, you are intimately familiar with. And I, I probably have to mention this, and I, I appreciate you've given this answer a number of times, but how do you approach that question of the growing divergence, perhaps, between the law of England and Wales as, as applies to England and the law of England and Wales that as applies to Wales. And what do you think the future of that dynamic is going to be? Well, first of all, there's nothing new about this. There have been subtle differences between the law of England and Wales. The Act of Union left a few anomalies, for example, 1536. So this isn't new. However, what is new is that, of course, we now have a, a primary lawmaking Senate, which can pass laws that diverge, particularly in the field of housing law uh, and other areas. And there is a distinct body of Welsh law that now exists. But I think then to um, come to the you know the easy conclusion that that would justify a separate jurisdiction, a separate legal system, is I think for the birds, frankly. I don't think it's necessary. I think what is important is that we make sure that Welsh law is accessible, that uh, when um, um, you know lawyers in England and Wales are working on particular issues, that uh, they are absolutely aware and it is flagged up and they are working to the correct set of laws, particularly if they're advising Welsh landlords on landlord and tenant legislation. And with technology, it should be very accessible. And therefore, I, I don't see any uh, dichotomy at all here. Uh, I think our tradition is very different from what happened in Scotland, where despite the union of the crowns and the union of the parliaments, the court system and, and the law was never brought to London. It was always maintained separately. And that's the tradition uh, and the history of Scots law, um, which we utterly respect. Our tradition and history is different. It's just the way it has 
gone. I think the idea of creating a separate jurisdiction is costly. It makes assumptions about the capacity of our system that I think I'm afraid are, are wrong. And it also actually fetters the potential of our legal professions, barristers, solicitors and legal executives, to work across borders, to work in England, to do cases in London, to, to enjoy the benefits of being part of one of the greatest jurisdictions in the world. Uh, you know, the Wales and England, England and Wales jurisdiction is renowned as one of the strongest across the globe. Why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Uh, and that's why I think that the case for a single jurisdiction is not just powerful, it is overwhelming. Uh, and that's why I was always happy to argue the case as Lord Chancellor and then latterly as Secretary of State for Wales. Of course, the, the Welsh Government itself is go, uh, undergoing a sort of codification of law process um, under the Council General Mick Antonyv at the moment, but formerly yes. it was J Jeremy Miles. Uh, what was the coordination like between the uh, Office of the Council General in Senedd and also in the equivalent roles in Westminster? I always enjoyed a good relationship with the Council General, Jeremy in, in particular, when I was a law officer and then latterly when I was Lord Chancellor and Mick as well I've worked with. And in fact, there were a number of times when I had bilateral meetings with the First Minister as well, because justice was not devolved in Wales. I was directly responsible for the court system and our prisons and probation service. But actually, Wales was top of the list in so many respects. We did probation reform first in Wales to great success. We introduced um, uh, alcohol tagging, you know, those those tags that can tell whether a, an offender has uh, been drinking alcohol in, in, in uh, not in adherence with their conditions of licence. You know, we did it in Wales. It was a great success. The court system in Wales was incredibly resilient during COVID. We did one of the first Nightingale courts in, it was in Cardiff. So, so Wales was very much at the forefront of innovation and change. Uh, it wasn't by any means an afterthought in the MOJ that I ran. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, far from, uh, you know, Wales having a disadvantage from being part of a bigger system, it was at a distinct advantage. Um, but I did take the relationship with the Welsh Government that I, I had very seriously. And indeed, that was something I carried through when I was Secretary of State for Wales as well. I'm keen to jump forward, Secretary of State for Wales, but I must ask you first, you, you mentioned um, in our uh, chat earlier, one of the areas that you're, you, you've kind of interested in, I think it is a particularly timely thing to be involved in, is the kind of interface between technology, artificial intelligence and the law. Is that something that you're pursuing within Parliament? I'm very interested in the issue of artificial or machine intelligence in, first of all, understanding what it's doing now and then understanding the ethical dimension that inevitably we need to think about when considering the human element of justice and the danger of, as the Chinese are doing, using algorithms on behalf of the state to decide millions of consumer and civil cases in China. You know, that's a heck of a step to take without rules and without actual deep thought as to the essence of AI. We want AI to be our servant. We don't want it to be our master. And whilst I'm no Luddite on these things, and I believe that uh, artificial intelligence can unleash you know, new areas of work and deal with documentation that up until now has been prohibitively time-consuming and expensive to look at. At the same time, we do need to do some thinking now about what it means, not just for the professions, but for society. And that's why I'll be taking up a, an unpaid uh, part-time senior research fellowship with the Mosava Romani Centre for Government at the Harvard Kennedy School next year. It's something that other colleagues like Ed Balls and other 
parliamentarians have done in the past. And I'm going to be focusing on AI and justice. I'll write a paper on it uh, at the end of my year. Uh, and I look forward to collaborating and working with leaders in the field of ethics and AI and uh, doing a bit of lecturing and tutoring myself, but largely doing it remotely from, from here, bearing in mind all my parliamentary uh, duties. So it's so a great uh, um, honour for me to do this, uh, and I'm really looking forward to helping provide some some thinking, new thinking, uh, or to bring together the best of, of thinking in this field, so that if possible, we, we might even be able to devise some some international rules as to how we apply this emerging and growing technology in the field of justice. Yes, I, I wonder how many fans of Strictly Come Dancing are wondering quite how far you're going to follow uh, Ed Balls uh, in some of these career paths. <laughs> well, I have to confess, I love dancing. Uh, whether I'm any good at it is for others to judge. But um, um, at the moment, I think I think that might be a bridge too far, bearing in mind the work, the other work that, I, that, that I'm doing here in Parliament and in, in my constituency in Swindon. We'll keep that one filed away for the Strictly Come Dancing researchers of the future. That's great. You mentioned uh, uh, your time as Welsh Secretary earlier, and I think we probably have to cover that. I mean, that, again, is a role that's, uh, you know, for a Welshman, it's a sort of bucket list kind of thing to do, to be represent your country at the top table. It was less than a year ago you were appointed. So how did you feel about being appointed Secretary of State for Wales? And what what is the kind of challenge of that role? I mean, I think a lot of people... You know, uh, to be fair, to be reflective of the broad spectrum of views, there are some people who see it as a very important voice uh, for Wales at the cabinet table. But then there are others who see it as a little bit of an anachronism in the era of devolution. How, how do you how do you perceive that role? And what was your experience of being um, Secretary of State for Wales? Well, it's certainly not an anachronism. It's a vital bridge between uh, life in Wales and the work of the UK government. It's not just about the relationship between the Welsh government and the UK government. Wales as a civic society, local government, all those wonderful community organisations we have up and down Wales that do so much to, to help the quality of life locally. I feel the Secretary of State role is still a very important one. And actually, it does, I think, depend very much upon the personality of the incumbent. I, I think it's the sort of job that you can do as much or as little as you like. I'm, I'm always a great believer of doing more uh, and filling the role and making it bigger and, and uh, working with, uh, you know, new uh, sources of advice and help. And I was, although I had a very short time as Secretary of State, I did pack in a lot of activity, a lot of visits, a lot of engagement uh, with the Welsh Government and indeed with uh, civic society as we emerged from COVID. You know, I was at the first uh, Royal Welsh show after COVID. I went to the Eisteddfod to speak. Uh, I, I went to lots of community projects around Wales to, to, to learn about what they were doing and how, how gov British government funding was helping them achieve their ambitions. And I continued pushing the Freeports uh, scheme, the initiative, which was then has been rolled out. It's coming to fruition very shortly. And the Shared Prosperity Fund, the levelling up funding that I was very keen to see the local authorities bid for uh, and that we could afford to lose no time on, even though there'd been a turbulent few months in politics. I mean, my appointment was, was you know, it was a huge honour for me, as you, as you rightly imply, to become the Secretary of State for Wales. The circumstances were, I have to say, odd uh, in that um, the, the, the day before 
And indeed, on the morning, I'd been calling for the Prime Minister to resign. And it was after that assurance was given that I felt able to serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet. Very unusual set of circumstances. Had he not done that, I wouldn't have served. But uh, those were the uh, parameters. And uh, me, together with politicians like Greg Clark, came back into the government on that basis. But it was by no means a a quiet summer for me. It was a a very busy and intense summer, largely spent in Wales. And I will always treasure those months that I had, however short that time in office. And of course, we should say as well, you were then reappointed by, albeit it was a small extra period at that post uh, under Liz Truss uh, when she was briefly Prime Minister earlier this year. In, In that role, I mean, one of the things that sort of comes up a lot is the the question of collaborative working between governments and regions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what role you had in the Western Gateway or you continue to have if you if you indeed do? Yes, well, when I became Secretary of State, I was particularly interested to make sure that the work of the Western Gateway Partnership was promoted and enhanced. Uh, We've been very well served by Catherine Bennett, the chair of the Western Gateway, former uh, head of policy for Airbus. Uh, And I persuaded Catherine to stay on for another an extra year. She'd already served three years because I felt her leadership was energetic and inspired. And it brings together South Wales from Swansea right across to Newport, together with the West of England, from Bristol right over to Swindon. Four and a half billion people living in an economic area with immense activity, but immense potential. And for a lot of people in our area, uh, the reality of life is that they might live in Wales, but work in England or vice versa. And their travel to work area doesn't correspond with boundaries or local government or in national government. And I think we needed an organisation to reflect that reality. And that's why focusing on uh, the Great Western Railway links, the, the M4, the importance of that corridor, the uh, potential of the seven estuary in terms of alternative energy sources and indeed nuclear as well to go back to the developments of 60 years ago, I think is a very exciting way of looking at our region. And that's why I was delighted, even though uh, my time as Secretary of State was cut short, I was delighted to be invited to become co-chair of the all-party group on the Western Gateway. We had a meeting in Parliament only last week. We continue to promote initiatives such as green hydrogen uh, and indeed other uh, new technologies because we firmly believe that uh, for economic prosperity and the high-skilled jobs of the future, from Swansea to Swindon, we need to be investing in these new technologies and new supply chains to be created as a result of that. So I'm delighted to be doing this. I feel absolutely committed to it. It has all the best elements of my uh, links to Wales and my constituency in Swindon. And that's why it particularly resonates for me to bring it all together in a cross-border way that reflects, I think, the very best of our United Kingdom. You mentioned there, obviously, it's been, uh, you know, we mentioned your time in, in Cabinet being cut short and the kind of extraordinary arrangement that brought you into cabinet role of Welsh Secretary earlier this year. It has been a very difficult time for the government in Westminster over the last 12 months. It's been um, tumultuous. How would you reflect on that? And what would you say, if anything, that the Conservative Party and the UK government has has kind of learned from the last 12 months as we close out 2022? Uh, Is it in a better place now than it was perhaps at January at the start of the year? Uh, I I think it is. I I think that um, what has happened is that the noise and the tumult and the sort of psychodrama has 
has passed. And that actually allows all of us to absolutely focus on what matters, which is inflation, cost of living, the economic challenge that all of Western Europe is facing, the war in Ukraine, uh, the rise of China, what that actually means in terms of not just the geopolitics, but you know the the economics of the world. Those are the issues that actually should matter to politicians here. And then translating that on the ground to action being taken to protect people's livelihoods, to do everything we can to get them through a very tough winter, and to convince people that we're on their side and that we are, you know, we have a plan. Uh, as to how we're going to get through these challenging times into a better future. And, you know, the, the big issues of the day are going to be health backlogs, the economy, and indeed the rising challenge of um, migration and how to deal with the small boats crisis. And, you know, the Prime Minister uh, will be, you know, he's making announcements on, on, on that last issue. On health, we've got, you know, big challenges that, that uh, we're trying to deal with, with more investment. Uh, and on the economy, you know, we're dedicated to bringing down inflation and uh, stabilising our, um, you know, economy. And, and, and I think that now, with the psychodrama over, the party gate, you know, psychodrama having we moved on from that, we're in a much better position to focus on what really matters. And that's when the Tory party is at its best, when it's actually thinking about, what voters care about, not what it cares about. And and it has been quite a tumultuous year also for another major institution of state, which is the monarchy, obviously. And um, as somebody who received, as I understand it, received your knighthood uh, as part of the first full formal investiture ceremony from the new King, King Charles, how do you reflect on the period of uh, the new era that has begun, both in terms of the institutions of parliament, but also the institution of monarchy and what this kind of says about the United Kingdom as we, again, as we close out 2022, which has been you know, a very difficult year for many uh, and uh, potentially embark on a, a 2023, which is not without its challenges, but perhaps won't feature some of that same kind of significant change. Well, indeed, I think I think the the death of the Queen and then the accession of the King was an example of how the UK Constitution works brilliantly and smoothly. Even though none of us had been around at the time of the last accession, you know, I went to the accession council that Saturday morning, and I I looked around and I said, none of us were here last time round. <laughs> Nobody who was here is still alive. Um, are we going to do this right? And we did it very very well, I thought. And the uh, not just the ceremonial, but the the organisation that went behind it, the you know, the whole approach and the involvement of the British public, I thought was was incredible. And the King will be coming to Westminster this very week to dedicate a plaque to uh, commemorate the lying in state of the, the late Queen. And you know, whilst we remember with thanks her reign and her service. We're now able to look forward to the coronation ahead and to a new reign. And I think that continuity, that sense of service and duty that underpins the modern monarchy is, is I think, uh, an extremely welcome and appropriate uh, series of sent more than sentiments, um, traditions that I think represent the very best of modern Britain. You know, the public expect those who um, uh, who are heads of state or heads of government to serve in that spirit of selfless duty and sacrifice. 
And you know, I, I thought the, the way the king has begun his reign is is a great example of that. And um, it was particularly poignant of me to receive my knighthood from him. And uh, you know, we I think we had both a moment to reflect about the enormity of events, and uh, you know, to, to catch breath as to to what what has happened in the last few months. It's uh, it's been quite a time for him uh, and indeed the queen, the new queen. Mm. And um, I think they deserve our support and admiration for the way they've they've uh, they've uh, managed to deal with it, with these tumultuous events. And so the next question and, and my final substantive question to you is, so what next? Uh, you've you've had uh, um, uh, a few years in cabinets in different roles and uh, been appointed Welsh secretary twice this year alone. Uh, what's what's on the cards for you in the future? Well, I've learned to expect the unexpected, and um, I, I can't rule out what might happen to my political career. I mean, I've had a, you know, pretty interesting career thus far. Um, I've still got plenty of oil, uh, petrol, and fuel, or whatever uh, energy in the battery. I suppose it's probably the best way of describing it nowadays to be green. Uh, I've got plenty left to give. Uh, I've mentioned, you know, my research into AI. I'd be doing a lot of work on autism in the new year about autism and the barriers that people with autism face with employment. I want to do more on that. And I'll be no doubt talking about the range of issues that matter to my constituents, whether it's the cost of train fares to and from Swindon, whether it's future economic opportunity for my area, which I'm working on with the local authority and businesses. You know, there's plenty for me to get on with, and I'll be doing just that uh, in the months ahead. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Robert. It's very much appreciated. And uh, before we let you go, and um, as a fan of the West Wing, I know you'll uh, get this, uh, we let Buckland be Buckland. Um, can I ask you what you'll be watching uh, over Christmas? Uh, are you anticipating seeing anything nice on television or do you are you not a television person? Are you a reader or uh, do you follow other pursuits? That is a very good question. I'm sure a bit of telly will will come my way if I can grab the television from my son, uh, who who will be back for Christmas. I am hoping to do quite a bit of walking uh, over Christmas and the New Year. I'll be back in Wales for at least some of it, and I would like to do a bit of serious walking. So um, uh, I've been doing quite a lot of walking this year in the Lake District and other places. So that's what I really would like to do, with perhaps some really good podcasts in my ear, and who knows, perhaps some Hiraith podcasts as well to keep me going as I wander through through the hills. Uh, that sounds like the perfect way for not just yourself, but anybody out there to spend the Christmas period. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.